I'm Aeson, it's Friday, and this is the Friday Show, your gateway drug to the weekend and the 9320 player. I'm delighted to be joined, as I am most weeks, by the man with half of Britain's football writers on strings whenever he retweets Mr. Hawking. How are you doing, Howard? <laughs> I'm okay, thanks. Excellent. 2020, though, I'm, I might stop doing that. No, no, Howard, never stop I'm- doing that. Well, I'm more mature. No. Responsible. No, no, no. Never stop doing that. Listeners, make sure that you tweet at Howard and tell him to never stop retweeting and humiliating those publications who write humiliating things. Yeah, well, that's the point. I don't do it to humiliate. I mean, there's a couple of... There's a couple of journalists who, in a way, deserve it for their... You know, the way they talk, the way they talk about people and their personality but trust me I don't do it to humiliate it I'll, I'll do it as a joke and light-hearted mo- the fast vast majority of the time and I'm happy to put my own predictions in there as well uh, I mean you, I could easily retweet our pre-season predictions <laughs> podcast just to level the playing field uh, who've I predicted to top six this year probably Sheffield United to go down on an Aston Villa top six is probably what I said, or something like that. So, yeah, I don't. I mean, with a couple of exceptions, humiliation is not really the the effect you're looking for. It's just a bit of a laugh, really. Mm. Uh, and I'm fine doing it if people, you know, people uh, see it that way. See, I'm being responsible in two thousand twenty. Such a grown up. I, I hope that. I hope that's my influence, Howard. That's. Uh, that's matured you in the last 12 months, or I'd like to think it was my influence. Anyway. Yeah, you, you keep thinking that, yeah. <laughs> right, listen, lad. Um, opening question for you, sponsored by uh, Daniel Taylor of The Athletic. Is Fernandinho the greatest Brazilian in Premier League history? Yeah. Who are his rivals? Uh, I'll have to get his... Right, well, blinkers <laughs> off. Firmino is a superb player. And I definitely put the two of the, you know, Fernandinho and Firmino as two of the top three. Definitely. The problem is, how do you, I find it very difficult to compare a defensive midfielder with a forward player. Uh, I'd still put Fernandinho for what he's achieved in, well, it must be six years now. It's just a shame he was 29 when he joined us. Uh, you know, what could we have got out of this player? Well, we've got enough out of him, of course, but it could have been, an even greater legacy if we'd just joined us earlier. Mm. Uh, you know, I think of Silver at Arsenal a long, long time ago, but to, to say I can have a complete picture of his what he did as DM is would be lying in a way, and I still think Fernandinho is a more complete player from what I remember of him. I mean, Silver was a brilliant at what he did in his role, and Arsenal, I don't think I've ever replaced him. So they will say the legacy, you know, his impact on the team is... He, as big as Fernandinho's because of the problems they've had once he left, which we ourselves may have. Uh, I know Rodri's brilliant, but you know what Fernandinho does is essentially the role of two players much of the time. I could say without any bias, he is the greatest Brazilian. Uh, Middlesbrough will hold Janinho Dia, a beautiful player to watch, but you know, he played in a relegated side. His impact on the Premier League is just not as great even if he was a supremely skillful player who you'd pay money just to watch alone. So I, I can say without bias that, yeah, Fernandinho's legacy, especially what he's done in the last year or so in the twilight of his career, kind of reinvented himself and 
kind of save the team once uh, with our defensive problems. Mm. Um, Yourself? Well, so firstly, I don't think that um, Firmino gets into the conversation right now because um, I think that as... How do I put this? For me, I think that the way that the way that you'd have to measure it is the player's impact on the team and then the subsequent success of the team. And as good as Liverpool are as a side, for the moment, they've only won one Champions League. So over... Firmino's been there for what? Four years? Five years, yes. I think? Four, I don't know. It's a fair while. But... Yeah. I think he joined in 2015, right? So, And I think he came in January. So he's basically been there for, for four or five years. Um, but I just don't think that that's enough to get him into that conversation. Because I think the conversation that we're talking about, for me, would be Fernandinho, David Luiz, and Gilberto Silva. And... Ooh. I'd just pile up the trophies. I'd just look at the honours that they've won at their respective sides. And I'd go, you know, they're more or less all in a very similar position. Um, is Fernandinho the greatest? I mean, I'll say it because he plays for City, but I'm sure that Chelsea fans will go, well, David Luiz was more influential or, you know, you could have Arsenal fans that will go, Gilberto Silva was more influential. I think... It's telling that the three Brazilians who we are discussing are all defensive players, quote unquote defensive players. Um, yeah, that's, that would be my take on it. I don't think that there's a, a straightforward answer. Um, I, I could say Fernandinho, but I could see why other people would, uh, make the argument for some I don't else. like doing lists anyway and top fives. And no. It's hard when you're, you know, opposite ends of the pit. I mean, how would you? How would you compare a goalkeeper, for example, to you know, the greatest Spanish player or something? How would you compare De Gea with David Silva? Obviously, David Silva's the answer to the question. But, uh, you know, it's just it's such an opposite. I'm surprised, though, by your David Luiz inclusion. I know he gets unfair stick at the moment, uh, a lot of the time, but I wouldn't even put him in the conversation because of his lack of consistency. I know how good he can be. He's a skillful, very, very skillful player who has had probably too much criticism, but I do feel his propensity for mistakes and the casual nature of his defending sometimes, for me, takes him out of that uh, that top echelon. Fair enough. I, I think that's a I think that's a fair rebuttal. I would just say that I, I think I mean I've not I've not checked this um forensically. But I suspect that David Luiz, Gilberto Silva and Fernandinho have all won a similar amount of trophies at Chelsea, City and Arsenal respectively and over a similar period of time. So yeah, like you're right in the, as you begin to separate them, you could go, well, David Luiz was never as consistent as Gilberto Silva has been or was or Fernandinho has been. That's, I think that's a fair argument. But I think if you just look at in terms of raw numbers of performances and trophies, I imagine those three lads are very similar. Yeah. I mean, trophies is, has some relevance, but again, that this is a team game and it doesn't really answer the question of who's been the... You know, you could be the greatest Brazilian in Premier League history in a, an average side. 
and it's it kind of I don't I'm not sure the trophy count is everything in the conversation either. Uh, no, but when you're looking because about- you can play ten times a season as well and and stay at Chelsea for seven years and rack up fifteen trophies, you know. But uh, I'm not saying it's irrelevant. I'm just saying you know I just look at it. It's impact on side and it's just level of performances. And Fernandinho, when he arrived, he took time. You know, it wasn't an instant hit. I remember the Blue Moon topic, which was surprised no one saying, uh, is he all that after a couple of months? And I think he came back after that, after the shell that Brazil got against Germany. I think it, that hit every member of the Brazil squad quite hard for about four months. So Definitely. He was, he, that season he took time. But generally, over the period he's been here, his consistency has been as good as probably any other player in that City or in the Premier League. He's he's just rarely eased off. Uh, so yeah, uh, surely he is the number one for me. Yeah, I'm surprised from that Daniel Taylor article. You know, there's there's so many Brazilians that have played there. You forget quite a lot of them. Uh, obviously, Coutinho sparkled briefly for Liverpool, but he's nowhere near had the impact. It's time in the country to be as part of the conversation either. Someone like Will I am, you know, again, up and down, not the consistency. So yeah, I think he I think he's it's fair to say he's number one. Okay. Beautiful. So a bonus opening question for you. Uh, very briefly, because I know how much you like to discuss the politics of Manchester City and ticket prices. Um Real Madrid ticket prices. Are they too high? Are City's hierarchy out of touch? Or is it fair to say that if you're playing the two-time or three-time back-to-back-to-back European champions in a knockout tie in the Champions League, that's a top, top, top tier tie and City are entitled to charge what they like? Yeah, well, I think it's about, what is it, the total is 13 times? Yeah, well, obviously, City price according to the opposition. That is, if we've got Schalke, uh, we won't be seeing these prices. Uh, the fact it's around a 16, you know, like not as deep into the tournament is neither here nor there. City on the bottom line is City will price accordingly as high as they can with as, as high as they can in the knowledge that they can still sell out the ground. So if they could, they could price everyone at hundred pounds, knowing it would sell out, they'd probably do it. Mm. I don't think, yeah, that's the bottom line. It is priced too high for me. Am I really angry about it? No, I'm on. I'm in the cheapest part of the ground and on the cup scheme, so it's thirty five pounds for me this game. Uh, but that's probably as cheap as it gets for a normal adult ticket. Uh, is that too much for me? Probably Real Madrid. Knockout stage, no, that's okay, but that's not what the whole ground's paying. I think they've gone about five pounds too high, and it is what it is. They generally price the price domestic cups brilliantly because they know they won't. You know, if they want a near full ground or full ground, they have to do that. But City will just aren't really bothered about how hard up I am, or you are, or anyone else going, or the Manchester population. They'll just price for revenue but wanting to fill the ground out which is pretty sad and disappointing because they just we've been over it with season ticket prices they don't have to do it this way if they put it £5 cheaper around the board or £10 won't make any difference in our revenue our transfer targets but they don't see it that way it's about power global standing 
getting that revenue up. It is what it is. It's disappointing. I'm past the point of being angry about it. It'll still sell out because they've got a long run at ticket sales on this. Yeah. I don't know what two months they've got to sell the tickets. It'll sell out. They know that. And mm. it's a shame because some, a lot of people that, you know, are there week in, week out won't go. Mm. Even though it's Real Madrid, they just won't go. I mean, I'm not doing, if we, you know, should get past United, I probably won't get, go to the cup final. Yeah. I've been enough times and for financial reasons, you know, it's not City's fault that one, but it is what it is. People are just, Picking and choosing, people will stop going on the cup schemes. They could have played it a bit better, but they're not the worst price I've ever seen. You know, you can compare it with other sides and it'll be fine. These are competitively priced compared to any other team that was in the Champions League at this stage, but that's not really the point. It's not about what other teams do. It's about doing the right thing for your own fans and they've gone too high for me on this. Okay, fair enough. Your thoughts, if you have any? Um, it I, is what it is. I mean, it's it, it's always difficult for me to comment on these things, living so far away and going to as few games as I go to. Um, I think in general, and I've said this since the takeover, I really don't understand why Mansoor doesn't just subsidise everybody's tickets to a ridiculous extent to curry even more favour amongst the... Uh, the local support because I think that you can have I understand why so you got to imagine it like this or well, this is the way I look at it anyway um, when they came in they said this is not we're not just going to dump money into this this is a this is it's going to be run like a profitable business right it's yeah. going to be run like a business and so the knock-on effect of that is that as you get more successful you get to charge more money because you're spending more money on wages and on players and on transfer fees. I think that's fine right across the board, but I really don't understand why for the sake of whatever they're... Like, so essentially, if they were to slash ticket prices by 50% right across the board, what is the hit that they would take over the course of the season? 20 million? Do you, do you have any idea of how much money they make from, from season ticket sales? I don't know, but I know it as a percentage of total revenue, it goes down and down and down every season as we keep getting exactly. more Exactly. So it eventually, so it's not just the value itself; it's its impact on our plans for global domination. Ticket revenue has never been less important. It used to be everything in football as general, and lower down the leagues, it's still absolutely vital. But it's not; it's just not that important anymore for the revenue of a. One of you know Europe's leading teams. It's just not. Do you I think? Mean, they're, yeah, they're picking up like this. Uh, China, we get ten million a season just for TV rights in that country. Mm-hmm. I think we've already got like you know you get seventy million for the Champions League and the TV pot. There's Hong Kong TV rights. You know, there's you could take any one of those, any one of TV deal with an individual country, probably covers all ticket income. For a season, you know, it's just it's not that important. If we lost, it could slash it. I, I would let's just say for argument's sake, five million pounds. What difference would that make to our transfer plans or anything? Are we really so on the edge of FFP that that would make a difference? And they don't have to slash it by fifty percent. You could have just frozen season tickets last year and the year before 
and they could have just knocked a fiver off and everyone would have been pretty happy. Yeah, but you know what? Soriano, right, and the bean counters are never, ever, 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 ever going to make that decision. That decision has to come from Sheikh Mansour and Khaldun. And for me, the only logical reason I can see for them not really going for the heart of this conversation by literally subsidizing tickets to a big percentage is that I imagine that at the Premier League clubs meetings that they have, other clubs who don't have the financial power of City might have something to say about that. And there might be a kind of... Because it's one of those things where they all compete with each other, but then they do a lot of collective bargaining. So there'll be a lot of things that they, those yeah. Premier League meetings, they agree on collectively. So that's kind of the only reasoning that I can see for them not taking this point of view. And I've, I've said it from, since, from day one of the takeover that I think that's the, that's the one place where I think they've really missed a trick because I think they will know deep down inside that, you know, you're talking about maximum 30, 40, 50 million quid. Uh, at a push, you're talking about 10, 12% of total turnover. And actually what we're talking about is not removing it totally, just bringing it down by a significant percentage. So, you know, if you're losing 25 of the 50 million on season ticket sales, if you have a good commercial department, if you've got, you know, your equivalent of Ed Woodward, he should be able to go and find 10 noodle partners to uh, to balance that out. And I'm sure that they could. But ultimately, the guys who get paid to make City as profitable as they possibly can be are never going to make that decision. Yeah. So We announced a sponsor deal this week alone, so which has put another couple of million in, I think, per year mm. from someone I've never heard of. You know, it looks... As our list of sponsors, it's probably right at the bottom of revenue, and that would cover that alone would cover slashing prices. I wrote about this ten years ago after the takeover. I said our owners have an, an amazing opportunity here to, to give us super, you know, super cheap prices that would make us the envy of the English game and perhaps globally. Then we found out about financial fair play and went, well, fair enough. They've got to meet. They've got to, yeah, they've got to raise revenue to. Uh, to pay for all these players. We can't just keep pumping money and it won't be allowed. Now we're past the FFP bit where revenue is so high that ticket prices don't matter. They've got that opportunity again. Uh, but as you say, we could, you know, talk her to a blue in the face. It's They're not really going to do it, are they? So. No, I don't think so. Um, okay, listen. Moving forward, I would like to remind you that on Tuesday night, we absolutely slapped Man United at Old Trafford. Again, um, now you've written a lot of questions about that game, and I'm going to ask you a question that is not on the list of questions that you wrote, Howard. So be prepared. Um, okay. There are reports today that after the match on Tuesday, Guardiola was furious with his side and absolutely tore into them for not burying Man United and burying the tie in the second half and in general for their performance in the second half. When you hear that, does that please you or do you think that Pep is being harsh? Bearing in mind that he is supposed to have singled out individuals and their performances in the second half. Yeah, that very, very, very last point I'm not 
comfortable with the rest of it I am uh, I mean we said the same thing uh, it pleases me that he sees what we said yeah you know, mm-hmm. that there was an opportunity there in the second half to to put the whole tie to bed to humiliate them I find it weird in a way I always thought that the way City played comes from the manager uh, that you know when they kill games off like this when they slow it down that they've not made individual decisions here that it's come that they see the wider picture from the manager of game management, energy conservation, all that sort of thing. So it surprised me that it would go against him. Uh, and then when you think about it logically, he's not really going to say that at half-time, is he, in the changing room? Just calm it down, lads. He's, he's not going to say we need to save energy. So it does make sense more think about it that the players take it upon themselves, which is strange in a way. I know they... Maybe the players don't see the rivalry the same way the fans do. A lot of these players will be friends and integrate off off the pitch. But surely they know the importance of a derby and surely they knew the opportunity there to put the tie to bed and to write themselves into the record books in a way. Yep. Because I'm not under-exaggerating there to say they could have surpassed the 6-1 quite easily if they'd gone for it health-lever. Because even when, even in that second half, when he attacked, you could see gaps all over the place, opportunities, uh, and we still should have had one or two more in that second half, even at that half pace. So I'm not happy with him. We know Pep's a perfectionist, and I'm glad that he, he brought it up. But targeting individuals, when I watched that game, it, I didn't. It didn't stand out to me that certain players were were winding down more than others. It felt like a collective thing. And I don't feel that after winning a derby, 3-1 at Old Trafford and, you know, dominating the game, I don't think it's fair. As a player, I wouldn't be happy if I sat in that dressing room and got absolutely slated by the manager. I think that's a step too far, to be honest. Okay. Um, Yeah, I kind of disagree. I think that... uh, I, I, I think that, in a way, it's very difficult to talk about the collective in the second half without looking at individuals and, and asking of them why they played like school children or why in certain actions they looked so complacent that, you know, I mean, it's, it's hard to separate the, the individual and the collective when you say we created so much that we could have had the, we could have scored five or six in the first half. And then you say we should have broken records. Well, then, you know, you can collectively bollock them, but I'm pretty sure the lads at the back will go, we did all right. Yeah. I'm pretty yeah. sure there's seven or eight players that will go, we did all right. We, we, we nailed our jobs. We bullied them for 90 minutes. So yeah. I'm, I'm okay. Even with the, um, uh, even if he singled players out, I'm I'm okay with that um, because I, I think that we. I mean, we talked about it. Like there's little bits of complacency. There were little bits of complacency in the second half. There were bits of complacency in the defeat at the Etihad uh, four weeks ago, five weeks ago. There was complacency in the defeat two years ago when we're two 0 up at halftime. I can fully see why Guardiola, you know, went through them collectively and individually and went. You can't do that. Batter teams, you know, especially your nearest rival. 
And I take your point about, you know, maybe there's mates in the dressing room and maybe there's an, I've, I've said this loads of times that I feel sometimes that we let the opposition off the hook because we feel sorry for them because we play at such a high level. We twist their blood for 40, 50 minutes. We score three goals, four goals, and then we feel bad. And then suddenly you've got all the conductors pointing backwards and going past the ball backwards. And it infuriates me. So yeah, I can understand why Pep went a bit mad about it. Um, I don't think I want to talk really about Solskjaer and uh, his kind of, whether his job, do you think his job is in danger very quickly? No. Okay. Uh, Not for the season, but I reckon there may be a summer swap for Pochettino. Okay. And do you think that United can challenge for a league title at any point in the next decade? (laughs) Who would put that in the agenda? That's that's, that's cheeky there. Uh, yeah, I, you can't really, you can't predict a decade, but I think you can write off, even with everything going right, you can write off three years minimum as a contender. Even if they start doing everything right from this point forward, the three years away from contention. Okay. You know, it took, I think it took Klopp that uh, to get you know, to this point and... And that's if they do everything right. I think the three years minimum. Yeah. So I wouldn't expect anything until the mid-decade. <laughs> so, yeah, which is very chastening thought if you're a United fan. And they, yeah, they'll be well aware of that it's uh, they've got a long, long journey to go on, uh, and a lot of things to do to even be on the same page as the likes of City or Liverpool. Fair enough. Fair enough. I think three. I think that um, football is uh, a bit more unpredictable than that. I don't think that, you know, I don't think if they appointed Pochettino in the summer and signed two top draw players, I wouldn't be shocked next season if they do really well. And, you know, so I just, I think you've, I think we've got to be careful about those kind of, I think for them to continue to fall further behind, um, I, I think the most likely thing is they'll continue to fall further behind because of the people who run the club. I think they're yeah. run really badly, and I think that's the issue. I think if they if they began to make the right decisions, I don't think it would take them years and years to get back to being a real title challenger. Because look, the reality that we don't talk about a lot because United are so protected in the media is they have the highest wage bill in the league, right? Yeah. That's ridic. That's a ridiculous amount of money that they're paying for the lack of quality. So you would think that a smart man with a clean broom and a good uh, a good eye for recruitment could flip that in one or two windows into something far more powerful than it currently is. So I think that's why you've just got to be. That's why I'm, I'm a bit circumspect about writing them off forever. Um, yeah, we'll just have to wait and see. I'll say the top three teams in the Premier League right now in the table are the three of the best run clubs so it's, it shows the you know the point of a, a well run club and you if you're not well run you just you're not going to get anywhere in this game you know even for ones lower down the table if you're not well run you'll be relegated and it's just it's essential as just you know getting the best players you've got to it's about recruitment it's about Doubts of football, you know, sensible. It's about the science behind it, uh, the facilities, uh, the relationship between the different levels at the club. Uh, and United are trend breakers because wage bills have been a better 
uh, indication of success historically than transfer fees. So generally, success has followed the biggest wage bills, uh, and they've completely broken that because they've tried to throw money at it, and it's just not worked. So, yeah, the, the, the start has to be, obviously, a better manager, but the way the club is run, if it's not changed, then nothing will change on the pitch either. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I've got to say, for the record, I don't feel sorry for Man United at all. I hope things get worse for them. Uh, well, I, obviously, I, I hope that's clear <laughs> in uh, in my sent in my in my attempts to be objective. I remember somebody once, as an aside, um, sending me a message after a podcast about United and the derby to tell me that they expect more objectivity from me as a host when talking about Man United. Uh, that's never going to happen, lads. I'm sorry. Um, hey, I can ridicule them whilst telling the truth. That's the, that's the, where the club the is. The easiest thing right now is that you don't need... You can just tell not, the t- truth and that's ridiculing them. You don't need to make anything up. You don't need to re- exaggerate anything. They it have. That's where it is. Yeah, we've been there, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, look. Um, I want to talk about our trip to Aston Villa next, Howard. Um, okay. So I'm putting something at the top of this conversation. I think this is going to be a very difficult game. I think that Aston Villa will cause us problems. And I think that it's exactly the type of game. I have already the fear of Norwich and Wolves. I already have the fear of this is a team that will be brave in certain actions against us who are very organised, who are very difficult to break down, but who will, going the other way, pose a threat. Explain yourself. Well, you kind of have there, but why do you think that a team just above the relegation zone would be such a difficult game? Well, I think because... The same reason that a lot of games like that are difficult. And what I mean by that is Villa don't have to do anything. So all Villa have to do is be very organised and very difficult to break down. That's their starting point, right? And if they can do that for 15 minutes, they're winning. We have, in this season, shown time and time again that if we don't start a game quickly, we don't score a goal early enough, we tend to let the opposition back into the game. Now, why do I fear Villa quite so much? I think in Grealish, they have exactly the type of player that we don't like playing against because he is a bit nasty and he is a bit gnarly, but he has got a lot of technical quality. He is showing this season that he's really smart, really intelligent, he can really hurt teams. Um, I just, I think that it's a game that we have to actively go there to not just win, but to beat them. We need to go there with a mentality like we started the game on Tuesday with, which is that we will dominate the football. But more importantly than that, every one-on-one battle We're winning it. We are here to humiliate you. If we turn up and are a little bit slow in our passing, if we're a little bit slow in our approach play, I guarantee you we're going to have a really long 
afternoon. Um, so now that I've talked Villa up like that in a big, big, big way, tell me why City are going to wipe the floor with Villa. I know, I was looking forward to this game. <laughs> uh, my hunch is, I don't think we'll come out of the blocks. I don't think we'll be 3-0 up after 20 minutes, but I think we'll make hay in the second half. Trusting. Aston Villa cannot... I mean, you look at the results, they're not... Yeah, let's look at them. They're not getting thrashed week in, week out. Yeah, I have watched a bit of them. Uh, and they're not playing that badly, but they're not playing that well, but they kind of throw, lose games where, you know, you think, well, they're, they're a bit all over the place, and you just for 90 minutes, they just do something. You think, well, they did play that bad, but they've lost the game somehow. And it seems to happen a lot. And now they've lost McGinn and they've lost my race, which may not be a bad thing. And it may help them that because they may do against Leicester. What they did was they did what City did in a way. No obvious front man and they rotated. So they may to, you know, to back up your view, may cram midfield and have false nines and make things confusing for our defence. But the bottom line is they just, haven't really, you know, their players have not taken to the Premier League well enough. They've not defended particularly well. If City are in the groove, then there's ample opportunities for them to create chances. I don't think Villa can play dead at home, and I think it may play into our hands that they can't do that. I don't think they know how to. I'm watching them. They're not the sort that will just... They may, they may be cautious, so there'll be men in the box... You know, they'll keep men in the box, they'll keep it crowded. But at some point, they'll have to come out and play. I just don't think it's in their nature to do that. And I think it will, I think my feeling is they will play into City's hands eventually during this game. And the gaps will be there. Is them- and I think it's about wide play in a way if it does get very crammed in that midfield. And I think we could tear them apart down, you know, in wide positions. Mm. So I do. I think McGinn's a huge loss. He's been playing well. That's what uh, I was about to ask you, Howard. Wings is back and Grealish, as you say, is their standout player. But if we deal with him, there's not that much else there creatively, I think, in that side. It just doesn't have enough goal threat in it. They got a draw against Leicester. I watched most of it. And, you know, they'll get lots of praise, as they should do. But I know we like to replay games. Uh, on another day, Leicester would have won that comfortably. Villa scored a nice goal. They hit the bar when they, from a yard out. But the fact is they had three shots over the whole game. Uh, they had about 30% possession. Where City will fall down is if they can't get through the numbers, the players, but, yeah, between them and the goal. Mm. We're, don't, we're going to dominate the ball. And it's just, I think the only way Villa gets something out of this is if they do play dead. And I don't think they will. Okay. Um, in terms of the McGinn miss is that um almost the equivalent of us losing fernandinho in that do you feel he's so influential in that midfield that without him there it, it's almost a completely different game of football yeah well it's just the partnership he had as in a way with grealish and he, you know i don't know how many goals he scored but he had the goal threat so fernandinho well i don't know he's not he's not that defensive is he but 
I do feel he's as, as important to them, yeah, as Finn Adenio is to us. No two ways about it. Mm. Uh, you know, we've got, I don't know if someone like Douglas Louise will play, but you've got players like that who have not really set the, the league alight yet. He may be keen to, you know, to make an impression because of his city links, but there's not, you know, Trezor Gay and Tick players like that. I just, I, I don't go off historical records, but obviously our record against Villa is superb. Uh, and I just think, I just don't see them threatening our goal that much, to be honest, uh, which is rare for me to say. The problem is, if it does become a very scrappy, congested game, then obviously they've always got the opportunity, there's always a chance they can score. And we've always got the chance of conceding, as we showed on Tuesday. Mm. But I have no doubt we will have vastly superior goal threats. So the main the way that we don't win this game is profligacy again. I don't see any other way. Okay. Or, or our goalkeeper getting sent off after 10 minutes, that sort of thing. <laughs> Listen, um, obviously Pep has used a lot of... Uh, a lot. He's used a few different systems um, in the last few weeks. Which one do you like the most? What have you liked of everything that you've seen in the last four or five weeks? And obviously I've got one eye on asking you to then pick a system to play against Villa. But of everything you've seen in the last few weeks, you can talk either about a shape or you can talk about an individual player or just what have you liked in what you've seen that you'd like to see replicated at the weekend? I like the back three because it allows the likes of, say, Fernandino or Rodri to become, be both a defender and a midfielder. You know, their DM role, according to whether we're in possession or not. Mm. And I like it because I like to see full-backs wing-backs over full-backs, in a way. Uh, so I think this is a game where, I don't know if he will play, but where someone like Mendy can bomb forward and Walker or Cancelo can bomb forward could be key in this game. You know, the width and the the wing, you know, our wide players moving inwards, like Mahrez has done so well. So right now, that wouldn't say there's one formation I like more than the other, uh, but I right now I do like that. That three at the back. Okay. What about yourself? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I was a big fan of uh, what we did to United. Um, as mad as it sounds, I wonder if we do that against Real Madrid. I wonder if we go man for man right across the pitch against Madrid as well. Mm. Um, but I think, in general, that I agree with you. I think the back three, I like it because I feel. It gives us a stability that we've not seen for a little while. But I also think, strangely enough, it makes us more of a threat from an attacking point of view. And part of that is down to moving players out of roles that they'd occupied for nearly three, three and a half years. So it's about, you know, slightly adjusting Mares's position or Sterling's position or bringing Bernardo into the midfield using that back three and operating like that. Um, so I've, I've liked the, I've liked the shape change and I've liked the knock on effects of where it moves the attacking players to and how that has felt like a change that the opposition at times haven't been ready for. Um, so yeah, I mean, looking at the, I don't know. I mean, look. To be honest, looking at the game, at, looking at the game against Villa on Sunday, I'm not going to be shocked if he goes four four two and plays Aguero and 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 Jesus, yeah. because you know, in this 
moments of trying things, which obviously we're perhaps in a moment of trying things. That's the one thing we haven't tried as Aguero and Jesus together. I expect it to be tried at some point. Is Villa away the right game to try it? Well, they both got a rest on Tuesday. You played a 4-4-2 on Tuesday, went man for man across the pitch, and it worked. Um, people may argue it worked because you were playing with two midfielders in the forward positions. Um, I don't know. Like it's it's in a, it's. I'm happy that we're having these conversations on podcasts, if that makes sense. Because well, I, go on. Can I ask you then if we're third, we're in third place in the league, we're 13 points ahead of United in fifth place. We're obviously finishing in the top four. I mean, United have got well, United are United, but we've got Liverpool next week as well. Uh, so they're not going to be uh, going on some 19 game or beaten run. I think we're we're pretty sure about that. Are you happy that we use the league to experiment for the bigger games ahead, which basically means Real Madrid and should we get past them the latter stages of the Champions League? Yes. I'm I'm happy that I'm happy that Guardiola even was asked the question in a press conference about whether um the tactical changes were down to Laporte being injured and whether him coming back would see City revert to their traditional 4-3-3. And Guardiola's answer was no. It was about the games and the circumstances, not about the players that were available. And so, yes, I will, I could use a back three, for example, even when Laporte is back. So, um, I'm just I'm 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 really happy with the uh with the tactical flexibility and I think that in terms of it being a a testing ground well you know I'd have done the tests even when we were in the title race because I felt the problems coming from very early in the season so I'd have been delighted to go to a back three the moment that that Laporte was injured yeah. or certainly within days of the Norwich game the first time that Otamendi falls on his arse this season and gives up a goal. I fully expected Guardiola in, in training the next day to be like, right, so we're going to have to find another way to work now because we've got months without Laporte and we can't have this instability. Um, so yeah, no, I'm, 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 I don't think that experimentation is a bad thing when you have the quality of players that we've got. Because look, worst case scenario, it doesn't work and you flip back to what you know half an hour into the game. Nobody's going to pan you. Well, I was about to say nobody's going to pan you for trying something different, but actually with Guardiola, they probably are going to pan you <laughs> for trying something yeah. different because they're going to say, oh, Pep overthought it. Whereas like, I'm sat here going, well, I wish you'd have overthought things back in September, October. Um, yeah, that's generally that's my, uh, that's my feeling on the, uh, on the tactical tweaks. Um, just to kind of look at the game from a personnel point of view uh, I don't really want you to pick me a team because I just think sometimes it's too hard and this is one of those moments where it feels too hard um, but are there any players that you would like to see start the game uh, yeah quite a few uh, obviously Edison back in goal yeah be great yeah I do want to see Mendy get another chance yeah uh, I don't I don't know where we are with Zinchenko at the moment obviously he's fit and available uh, when he's not in the away end, but does he get in ahead of Mendy for you? I don't. I don't yeah, I don't. I don't know. You know, 
is kind of forgotten in a way because of the injury uh, and Mendy staying fit. Does he get in? I don't. You know, he's not. It's the left po- the left back problem is still an enigma in a way. So I don't have any answers for that. But I'd like to see against a team like Villa who are not, you know, just full of pace on the counter attack or. I know at home, I don't mind seeing Mendy given some freedom to try and we, you know, to bomb down that that wing uh, rather than be just a defensive fullback. So, uh, obviously, I would like to see uh, Sergio back in the side. Uh, he needs some match fitness. I'd like to see Mara's in the side. And uh, you know, the big question is: Bernardo Silva was brilliant on Tuesday. I'd love to see him again. And Raheem Sterling is the the big question mark, is as to whether he is out of form and you play him to play him back into form, or that he needs to be benched uh, in the short term, and other players given a chance. You know, and I'd love to see Phil Foden again because that energy could be crucial in the midfield. But who knows with him? Uh, we don't need to go down that. Have another conversation about how, how many games he should play. Well, yeah, you know, obviously the defence, Fernandinho, it depends on the formation. It really does. But I'd be happy to see the same sort of side he's played when he's played three at the back, the same lineup in a way. Okay. You know, with Sergio back in perhaps. Uh, I don't have very strong feelings, but, you know, players like Mares, Fernandinho, Edison are obviously three key players. I'd like to see Bernardo back in, uh, stay in the team. Okay. I think for so, me. I think for me the big one is John Stones. I think that yeah. if John Stones is fit, I want John Stones to start. Um, pushing forward from that, I kind of agree with you. I'd like to see Mendy get another game. Uh, I'm. I like Bernardo in the number eight position. I like Bernardo right now more than I like Phil in the number eight position. Therefore, Phil doesn't get in for me. Because I want to see Bernardo and KDB. Um, I'd like to see a back three. Stones, Rodri, and, and and Fernandinho is my dream. But I yeah, don't. I'm fine by that. Yeah. I, I, I'm not convinced that Pep will do that. But that's what I'd like to see. Um, I'd go with Walker and 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 Mendy. Uh, I'd play Gundo and Bernardo, uh, Gundo and KDB, and then Bernardo, Aguero, and. So, question for you. Mares, does he is he now at that stage where Mares, in the way that we were with Sterling at, at different points uh, in the last few years, are we at the stage where we have to write his name down in the starting eleven because of the way that he's performing? Yeah, it's kind of Sterling earlier season, in mm-hmm. a way. Uh, I'm not sure we, we have a, a must-play player. Obviously, Kevin De Bruyne who I've not mentioned yet, it's just a given that I want to see him in the team if he's fit. Uh, yeah, I don't want him to burn out. So, yeah, I don't want him to be 90 minutes because that may be the problem with Raheem Sterling right now. Or it may not, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, he's definitely right at the top of the pecking order and he's above Sterling now. Uh, as for Bernardo, uh, and Kyle Walker was brilliant, uh, you know, against United. There's the argument that you reward performances like that. You don't drop them. Yeah. I always think to Eddie Jacko going for at White Hart Lane and then being benched for the next game. And he, I know he's talked about that in interviews since, that he could not believe that he scored four goals and then didn't start the next game. 
So players remember stuff like this. Uh, I know Bernardo just likes playing at Old Trafford anyway, so I'm sure he'd put in a, a 9 out of 10 performance every time he plays there. So. Mm. But I think he should reward performances like that. Definitely, definitely. So um, I'm... Uh, are you... Are you with me on the experiment of Gabby and Aguero as a front two with uh, uh, with Bernardo behind them and KDB and Gundo and then the two wing backs and a back three in Edison? Or yeah. do you think that one of Mares or Sterling must play? Uh, no, I'm not. Obviously, I want Mares to play, but you know it's a one it's a one off game. It's not the end of the world if he, you know he doesn't start a game. And I quite like the sound of that. And I'd like, you know, don't know Jesus and Aguero. You know, it's been, it's been a while. It just doesn't happen much. I'd, I'd be interested to see that, definitely. Uh, you know, all I can remember is them tearing it up against Watford at the end of a season. And it's it's always the case. You just assume it's one or the other, but I wouldn't mind seeing that at all now. Okay. Especially away from home. I think it can be quite a potent weapon. Yeah. And it's, you know, we've not seen it enough over recent years. I think it's the one thing that I'd like to see Pep try because we've done the back three. We've done 4-4-0 with uh, two false nines. I'd like to see a real 4-4-2 or 3-5-2 with two real number nines because then I feel as though we've got more or less all the potential tactical bases covered for the second half of the Champions League campaign and also for Pep moving into next season as well because, you know... You forget that all of this stuff that he's doing can all be applied next season. And I'd like to think that next season there'll be a, a, a stronger hunger to bring the Premier League title back to the Etihad. And so, you know, you'll need those weapons. And I just think a, a side like ours, for the quality of players that we've got and we have, um, and the quality of coach that we have, I'm surprised that it's taken Pep this long to try different ways of using the weapons that he's got. Yeah, that's fair enough. Uh, finally, comfortable win for City? I, I'll stick by my original hunch. Uh, comfortable eventually. So a good second half. Two goals. No, something like a 3-1. Something like that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I started the podcast thinking that I'd probably find myself predicting a scoring draw. Um, but no, I... Uh, thinking about the idea if it's true that Guardiola went through them um, at the full-time whistle at Old Trafford then no I do think City will uh, I do think City will nick it but I think we will nick it I don't think that we're winning by uh, by clear goals not by multiple goals um, but yeah I do think we'll we'll get over the line right Howard you have in your agenda that we are going to preview Spurs against Liverpool because that is this weekend. I don't mind. I don't mind doing that, but I'm not talking about the Scousers, or at least not. No, for no. Two. I just wanted to have a pop at Mourinho. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that. That's why I'm. That's why I'm just. I'm just setting the tone for everybody. I'm not talking about the Scousers. Really not interested. Um, in terms of Spurs, just very quickly, has has Mourinho had an an impact since he's joined Spurs? Um, 
I've seen that they seem to be leaking a lot of goals. Again, I'm not following them forensically, so I don't know. Like maybe they're battering teams and 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 being unlucky. Uh, maybe you know a bit different. But what's the what's the impact that that Mourinho has had? And now that Kane is out for a considerable amount of time, what are their chances of finishing in the top four? Uh, let's get the no. I've not followed them forensically, but I have watched. Was it Norwich away? I think, yeah. Well, they were not good at all. Uh, well, they're in sixth, but they're six points off Chelsea in fourth. And the question is, you don't know how Chelsea are going to be because they're quite erratic themselves. But right now, no, I would not put a single penny on them finishing in the top four. Uh, they're not battering teams much. They've had their little spells. But, yeah, I always... Under Pochettino, until it went wrong, I always had them as a very defensively solid team. And obviously that went awry. And Mourinho's just... <coughs> he's come in and he's kind of jumped the first year and gone to Mourinho's second season syndrome. <laughs> now, now those that are up his arse, like Castles, will tell you that's the best Mourinho when he wins the league. But he's not. He's just a, he's just a dinosaur now. The second season Mourinho I'm thinking of is the one who's already snapping in a foul mood. And... Uh, Singling out players in you know in public is the sort of way it's going. There's not really he won two of his first three games, but they weren't hard games from my vague memory, and they didn't. It's not as if they played brilliantly to win them, and he's so he's not really had the honeymoon period. He's not really changed much. He's just not done anything. Uh, the old Spurs had a great record without Kane in the side, but you can't really argue that this is anything but bad news for them to lose him essentially for the rest of the season. So I just, I'm a, my view really, I've, I've always hated Mourinho. <laughs> uh, obviously 10 years ago he was brilliant at what he did uh, and he had the charisma and you know, he still had that that aura about him but I felt that went years ago and I'm surprised that you know, Spurs, that Daniel Levy's made this appointment because I just don't see it ending well at all. If he can't even have that that instant impact, that short term effect, then there's little point in being there. I'm sure he will eventually make them more defensively solid, but I just don't see him being a success there. And it's all pretty much played out how many of us suspected it would do. Mm. And his his only chance against Liverpool is his legendary park in the bus. You know, he the, the Mourinho of old had that ability to, to destroy games and get results that way. So we will see if he's still got that ability this weekend. I think he's... I'm, I'm not convinced. I think he's always... He will always retain the ability to spoil a single 90 minutes of football in order to get a result. Yeah. Um, so I think just very specifically looking at the game at the weekend, look, Mourinho doesn't go... To uh, is the game at Anfield or is it actually at Spurs ground? It's at Spurs, yeah. Ah, okay. Well, that's, that makes it a very different. I, actually, weirdly enough, I give Spurs less of a chance now. I, <laughs> I, I'd probably have given them more of a chance if he was going to Anfield because then he's just going to do his Anfield thing, which is just yeah. eleven on the edge of the area, and then you know we'll see if we can nick some on the break. But I think at Spurs, <clears throat> fact that they've got a poor defensive record. Harry Kane being out, yeah, I don't really, uh, I don't really give Spurs much hope. I think with Mourinho there, uh, I listened to, I think it was the Totally Football podcast, uh, and somebody made 
a great point, which kind of highlighted how much of a dinosaur Mourinho still is. We're talking about um, a non-ballet and how, and Mourinho has done this throughout his career, that he loves players who play through injury, right? Yeah. So it's like, you know, he will applaud a player who play, I think that the way they, they phrased it on the Totally Football podcast was, he'll applaud a player who, who will play with one hamstring, right? But yeah. in the modern game, that's just not how it works. And Ndombele basically had a few niggles and couldn't play. And then Mourinho's called him out really blatantly in a press conference, basically called him a bit soft, right? So then obviously Ndombele makes himself available for the next game and has to go off injured after 20 minutes because he aggravates the injury that he was trying to tell the dickhead coach that he had in the first place. So... Yeah, Mourinho's a dinosaur and he's doing at Spurs. Like, it's funny because I said when they appointed him that actually he appointed new PR people about a year ago because his reputation was in the toilet. And basically he knew that to get a job, particularly in England, he's got to rehabilitate his career. So or rehabilitate his image. He did that on Sky. But in terms of whether he's changed as coach, I think that all that the Spurs job is proving is that he's as finished at Spurs as he was finished at Man United as he will be finished if he takes another Premier League job I'm sure he could probably go to some you know lower league in Europe and 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 eke out some results but in this Premier League at a big club and Spurs are a big club in that sense where players expect to play a certain way expect certain things I just don't see it um I don't see it happening for Mourinho. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's tactically astute as ever, of course. You, know, you can see that from a, being in the Sky Studio, but the, what he's lost now is, as a player, would you run through brick walls for him? He's just he's lost his aura. He's lost his uh, siege mentality. It just doesn't work in 2020 for me. And I don't think the, the Spurs players are you know, signing up for that either. Yep. Uh, they're not interested in that sort of mentality anymore. They want, you know, want to be coached and told how to play better and yeah and not to be treated like naughty school children if they do something he doesn't like yeah absolutely right Howard to wrap this up I've got a single simple question for you if Liverpool were to lose to Spurs is there a title race on again no (laughs) thank you (laughs) um so in that case yeah who cares who wins uh I'm not going to predict it right I'm wrapping this up that was, a, that was a nice, robust hours chat, Howard. Thank you very much. Yeah, pleasure as always. To everybody who listened, thank you very much. This was the Friday show on the 9320 podcast. If you're not a member of the 9320 player, go to our website, check it out, check what we do. We did 130-something podcasts in 2019. That's a lot of hours of City Talk. Um, and yeah, for those who are members of the 9320 player, we'll be back with a review of the Aston Villa game Monday morning. In the meantime, be safe, be well, and as always, up the blues.